Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. It was 50 years ago this April. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. The country erupted. There was civil unrest from Washington, D.C. to Detroit. Of course, all America is outraged at the assassination of an outstanding Negro leader. That's President Lyndon Johnson. At the time of King's death, he was frustrated. Congress was fighting the passage of proposed civil rights legislation on housing. And indeed, this bill has had a long and stormy trip. Congress had held up the Fair Housing Act for two years. And even with King's death, many lawmakers like this one still wanted to preserve segregation. The death of Martin Luther King is a tragic thing, but no legislation should be passed as a memorial to anyone. But King's death finally gave Johnson the leverage he needed to get it passed. I do not exaggerate when I say that the proudest moments of my presidency have been times such as this. When I have signed into law the promises of a century. Housing discrimination was totally legal until the 60s. The Fair Housing Act outlawed it. But that law didn't solve the whole problem. While it banned discrimination, banks still weren't making home loans to African Americans. It took nine years for Congress to pass the Community Reinvestment Act, which required banks to lend to qualified borrowers in so-called blighted neighborhoods. We've been investigating whether decades later, the promise of fair housing is being fulfilled. We spent a year going through millions of mortgage records to find out who can get a home loan and who can't. Later in the show, we'll let you know how you can find out what's happening in your neighborhood. We're also going to show you how the Community Reinvestment Act, which was designed to help people of color, is producing some unintended results. Our reporters, Aaron Glantz and Emmanuel Martinez, along with producer Catherine Miskowski, have been traveling the country digging into this issue. Aaron begins in a neighborhood in West Philadelphia. I'm in a part of West Philadelphia that's not far from the University of Pennsylvania. It's what realtors call a neighborhood in transition. There are blocks pockmarked with vacant lots and houses with peeling paint and sagging front porches. This part of West Philly is mostly black. Aunts, cousins, grandparents often live right on the same block. Families have lived here for decades, settling as far back as the 1940s. But there's a lot of remodeling and construction going on. Newcomers are moving in, attracted by the affordable price of housing and proximity to the university. I'm going to tell you about two of these newcomers. One's black, one's white. They each wanted to buy a home in the same neighborhood. Situations like this are playing out all over the country. Let's start with Rochelle Farul. I am from Brooklyn, New York, by way of Barbados. Rochelle had graduated from Northwestern and done a stint in the Peace Corps. She was in her early 30s, teaching computer coding at Rutgers University and renting an apartment here in Philly, when she decided to buy a house. My mom and her siblings have been obsessed with homeownership, you know, and just like ingrained this idea in, in all of us. My brother and I and my three cousins, no matter the cost, buy a home. 
You can hear how determined Rochelle is, but here's the other thing. She's super organized and prepared. Her mom was a public school teacher who sent her to an elite boarding school. Rochelle went on scholarship and was one of the few African-Americans there. She's a high achiever, but buying a house turned out to be a lot harder than Rochelle expected. Her first stop was Philadelphia Mortgage Advisors. It's part of a new breed of independent lenders that are not banks, but are making an increasing share of the loans in the economic recovery. Rochelle's broker was a woman named Angela Tobin. Anybody who works in the mortgage arena here in Philadelphia seems to know who she is. At first, the broker was enthusiastic. Her emails to Rochelle were full of exclamation points. Angela reviewed Rochelle's credit score, income and savings, and told her everything was on track. But then suddenly, Rochelle's application was turned down. Rochelle wasn't on staff at Rutgers. She was teaching there on a contract. Angela told her she hadn't been doing it long enough. She told Rochelle she would have to wait two more years or get a full-time job. Rochelle didn't think that was the real reason. I wanted to know what Angela thought. So I called her up. Hey, great, Aaron. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for taking the time to talk. I appreciate it. First, I asked her about the company's performance in Philly. The government keeps track of who gets loans and who doesn't. Well, we looked at the data. We found that your company, Philadelphia Mortgage Advisors, had made like 250, 300 conventional mortgage loans in 2016, and only 10 of them were to African-Americans. I don't know where your data is coming from. Yeah, our data is coming from the government. Your company and every other company is filing uh, information through the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. And when we look at the data for your company, we see a much larger proportion of borrowers who are white and a much smaller portion of borrowers of color. I can't really speak to that because that is not at all who my particular clients are. If you'd like to speak with someone in my office, I'm happy to give you their contact information. I told Angela I'd be happy to talk to anyone from the company. But first, I asked her about Rochelle's application. Why had Angela turned her down? She was concerned that it might have something to do with her race, that she was turned away. No, that's not at all accurate. Why do you say that? Well, you hung up on me. After Angela hung up on me, I tried to set up an interview with an executive at the company. But no one would talk. Instead, they sent a statement. Philadelphia Mortgage Advisors didn't dispute the numbers it had reported to the government. But they said an outside auditing firm had found there was, quote, no elevated risk of unfair lending practices at the company. Rochelle still wanted to buy a house. I was like, okay, I need to get a full-time job. Rochelle got a job. Associate Director of the South Asia Center at the University of Pennsylvania an Ivy League institution. She manages a million-dollar grant there. She found a two-story house that needed some work. And for a loan, she went to Santander Bank, the U.S. outpost of a Spanish bank, with a regional headquarters in Boston. My experience was so horrible. The process dragged on for months. I had a fair amount of savings, and still I had so much trouble, just left and right. Her loan officer kept asking for new information, or sometimes the same information again. Rochelle answered all their questions. Didn't matter, and none of it mattered. She felt like she was getting the runaround. I was really sad. I remember there was one day where I just sat on the couch and was just, like, so defeated. The process went on so long that eventually an unpaid electric bill showed up on her credit report. It was for an apartment in New York where Rochelle didn't live anymore. She'd sublet it to another tenant. When Rochelle found out about the bill, she paid it right away. But it still plunged her good credit score down 50 points. And Santander said that was a deal breaker. Rochelle's story is all too familiar to real estate broker Arlene Waynes Thomas. It's one thing after another, one thing after another. It's just like pulling layers off an onion. Arlene's the president of a local chapter of African-American real estate brokers. She's been helping people buy homes in Philadelphia for 30 years. And she says her black clients are treated differently by lenders. Well, they may not like what happened between the last time you worked 
on this particular job to this one, they may see there was a gap. I have seen situations where they've asked people for the children's birth records. They want to know how old they are. The things that happen behind the scenes is what is disturbing. In this neighborhood in West Philly, Black people have been having trouble buying homes for generations. It's a part of a bigger story of housing discrimination in America called redlining. It dates back to the Great Depression. The federal government drew lines on maps and shaded some neighborhoods red, warning banks not to make loans there. They said it would be financially hazardous because some areas were, and I quote, infiltrated by Negroes. Immigrants, too. Other neighborhoods, like the one in West Philly, where Rochelle wanted to buy, were shaded yellow. The government said it was definitely declining because the infiltration of Jewish people had depressed values and that the neighborhood was, quote, threatened by Negro encroachment. Today, the maps are gone, but the lines of disparity are still intact. When we come back, a white couple without a whole lot of cash gets the loan of a lifetime in the same neighborhood where Rochelle is trying to buy a house. We could easily get pre-approved for a mortgage up to almost $500,000. They were willing to offer you a half a million dollar mortgage even though you had almost nothing to put down and you're a radio producer and a graduate student? Mm -hmm. Correct. After like a five minute phone call. That's next on Reveal. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. This hour, we're talking about home ownership in America. Who can get a mortgage, who can't, and why not? Reveal spent a year looking into this question. Heading over to the data cave to talk to Emmanuel Martinez. Hey, what's up, Al? Side note, the data cave is just a row of desks that are catty corner mine. The data cave can be a dark, dark place once you're buried in those numbers. (laughs) Don't bury me. I've been looking at the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act data. This giant government database has information on nearly every home loan application in America. It tells you a lot about who's trying to buy a house. You have the race and ethnicity of the applicant, how much money they make, how much money they want to take out, and then you have the location of where they're looking to get that loan. So looking here, right, I see applicant race, and I see, like, five, 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 fives. Like, what, who are fives? Five is white. Emmanuel went through 31 million mortgage records, covering two years, 2015 and 2016, the most recent data available. And he honed in on loans where someone was trying to buy a house with a conventional mortgage. I did a a statistical technique called a logistic regression. We were wondering if someone was going to get denied a mortgage or not. He looked at nine different factors that banks might use to decide if they want to give someone a mortgage. Things like income and race and, like, demographics of the neighborhood. And in Philly, where Rochelle lives... Black applicants there are nearly three times as likely to be denied a conventional home mortgage than white applicants, even after we control for things like income and how much money they're wanting to take out. So in Philadelphia, because I'm African-American... I am way more likely to be turned down for a loan. And that's true in many places across America. 
We found dozens of metro areas where this is happening, in 61 cities. Lenders were way more likely to deny conventional mortgage loans to people of color than whites, even after we accounted for how much a person made or how much they wanted to borrow. I've mapped those metros if you want to take a look. Yeah, show me. So here, here's the map. African-Americans were more likely to be turned down in most of these cities. But we also found the same pattern of denials for Latinos in two dozen metro areas. And there were parts of the country where banks were more likely to turn away Asians and Native Americans. You can see that the problem is everywhere. You have these large metro areas like Orlando, Philadelphia, Jacksonville, Washington, D.C., where this, this is a problem. And you have smaller places like Santa Fe, New Mexico, Chico, California. Atlanta, Georgia, St. Louis, Missouri, Tacoma, Washington. In all of these places, and dozens more, people of color were significantly more likely to be denied a conventional mortgage to buy a house. If you're wondering what's happening in your neighborhood, you can find out more information right now. All you have to do is text HOME to 202 273-8325. That's HOME to 202-873-8325. And here comes the legal lingo, standard texting rates apply. And if you want to stop getting the text, just text STOP. Okay, so we've been talking about one woman, Rochelle Farool, who wanted to buy a house in West Philly. My mom and her siblings have been obsessed with homeownership, you know, and just like ingrained this idea in all of us, my brother and I and my three cousins, to no matter the cost, buy a home. One reason that's so important is because in America, homeownership is the ticket to wealth. But African-Americans are being left behind. Their rate of home ownership is the lowest since the 1960s. That's a big reason the median net worth of white families is 15 times as much as a black one. So Rochelle wondered whether her race had something to do with why she was having trouble getting a loan. Now, it turns out that the home Rochelle wanted to buy was just one street over from where one of Reveal's producers, Laura Starcheski, lives. Aaron Glantz stopped by Laura's and got a house tour. This is almost done. We've been putting in this patio. We just have to, like, set the last few stones. Laura bought her home last year after it had been gutted, remodeled, and flipped. The yard is a work in progress. There's an old oak tree that shades Laura's backyard. It's in the yard of the house Rochelle wanted to buy. Laura and her wife Megan, a grad student, are both white. And their house is almost exactly the same as the one Rochelle wanted. This is like super standard Philly, twin, shared front porch, shared wall with like a breezeway between every other house so you get some light. The houses may be similar, but the experience Laura and Megan had getting a mortgage was totally different from Rochelle's. Megan says banks were falling all over themselves to get their business. We could easily get pre-approved for a mortgage up to almost $500,000. That was from Wells Fargo. They were willing to offer you a half a million dollar mortgage even though you had almost nothing to put down and you're a radio producer and a graduate student? Mm-hmm. Correct. After like a five-minute phone call. They ended up going with TD Bank, a big East Coast bank. It gave them a loan that was more in line with their budget. So this was $200,000? 205. 205. And what did you put down? 6000 You put $6,000 down. So that's like... 3%. 3% down. They got a great deal, thanks to the Community Reinvestment Act. The 40-year-old law requires banks to lend to low-income people, but it also requires them to lend to anyone buying in poor neighborhoods. In order to meet its obligations under the law, TD Bank offered Laura and Megan great terms. We have this special mortgage. You can put a really small amount down, which was good for us because we barely had anything to put down. We had to put down, like, the minimum. The Community Reinvestment Act was designed to lift up communities, but it was written back in the 70s, and it didn't anticipate gentrification. In Philadelphia and other cities across America, upwardly mobile whites are now buying homes in the inner city. This part of West Philadelphia is 70% African-American, but Reveal found most of the loans here are going to white people like Laura and Megan. Okay, so basically you've got, like, two white women with barely any savings to make, like, the lowest possible contribution to get a conventional mortgage 
and they gave it to us. We found that TD Bank, where Laura and Megan got their loan, out of all the big banks in Philadelphia, it was the most likely to deny home loans to African-Americans, nearly two-thirds of all black applicants over the last five years. I showed Laura a list of everyone who applied for a loan from TD Bank. Sure enough, there were many African-Americans who made more than $100,000 a year who were turned down. They're denying two-thirds of black mortgage applicants. Right, even when the African-American applicants actually make more money. Oh, God. And I told Laura another thing we learned about TD Bank. It has 36 branches in Philly. Do you want to guess how many of them are in majority African-American neighborhoods? I would guess zero or one. Yeah, zero. zero. They don't have a single branch in, an, in a black neighborhood. Not one branch in a majority black neighborhood, but TD Bank calls itself America's most convenient bank. And Aaron, how do they compare with other banks? All the other big banks in Philly have at least one or two branches that serve the black community. So what did TD Bank have to say for themselves? They wouldn't talk to us. But they sent a statement. It says, TD is fully committed to offering the financial access, resources, and education our customers need to meet their financial goals across all of our communities. And then it goes on to say, quote, TD's denial rates for all lending products across all races, ethnicities, and consumer segments show similar patterns. This demonstrates that TD Bank makes credit decisions based on each customer's credit profile not on factors such as race or ethnicity. So they claim they don't discriminate. Right. But here's what's not in their statement. When you look at all the large banks in America, TD Bank is the most likely to deny a loan application from a Black person or a Latino. So Laura and Megan, who are both white, they got a loan really easy. But after a year and a half of trying, Rochelle, who's Black, was still struggling to get a loan. When I meet back up with Rochelle, she tells me about her latest attempt to get a mortgage. It was with Santander Bank. And again, she was having trouble. I understandably was really upset because, you know, I'd been looking for a while. Um, and so I was like, well, what do I do? Rochelle lays all her documents out on the table, stacked in clearly labeled manila folders. This is our loan, one of many loan documents. Despite everything she's been through to buy a house, she hasn't lost her cool. She tells me she tried to bring on a co-signer to help get the mortgage approved. Rochelle's mom said she'd do it. Her mom is a retired school teacher who owns property and has a good pension. But the bank said no. So Rochelle's partner, Hanako Franz, suggested they apply together. The two had been dating for less than a year. And Hanako didn't even have a full-time job. I worked very part-time at this grocery store. Mm-hmm. And that was it. But they decided to go for it. Because Rochelle had been trying to get a loan for so long, her credit score had taken a beating. When a lender pulls a credit report, the score goes down. The unpaid electric bill hadn't helped either. By the time we started the application, and I was you know, ready to put an offer on the house. They had done so many polls that my credit score dropped to 635. And I love you. I love you so hard. But what was your credit score? Mine was high. It was like 744 or something. And you have no money. Yeah, I we did this after I was a school teacher for four years, quit my job, moved to Japan, was making $9 an hour at- Selling like, French fries. Yeah, selling French fries. Hanako's most recent paycheck was only $144. But she had something else going for her. She's white adjacent, as Rochelle puts it. Her mother is Japanese and her father is white. Hanako identifies as Asian. But she wondered if the loan officer saw her that way. Legally, my first name is Mary. um, And nobody calls me Mary. My email is Hanako, you know? He would call me Mare. Mm-hmm. And then, like, towards the end, just completely stopped answering Rochelle's phone calls. Just ignored all of them. And then I called, and he answered, like, almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And is so friendly. At this point, Rochelle had been trying to buy a house for over a year. A few weeks after Hanako signed on, 
Michelle finally got a mortgage. Santander allowed me to get a loan because I came on. Because Hanako came on. This process, in a lot of ways for me, was really disempowering. It was humiliating. It was humiliating. And that's where a lot of my bitterness comes from. Um, I was made to feel like nothing that I was contributing was of value. Like I didn't matter, you know? We've been hearing a lot about credit scores. They're supposed to be this neutral way of grading whether a person is a good credit risk or not. It's supposed to be an unbiased system. Right. It was actually created to solve the problem of racism. Back in the 80s, loan officers would just turn people down just because of the color of their skin. And so a lot of people in the civil rights community thought, hey, what we need here is an independent number, something that's fair, something that comes out of a machine. But it turned out that the formula that they used is itself discriminatory. It's like, for example, if you already have a mortgage payment, every month you make your mortgage payment, your score goes up. So if you miss a payment, you have all those other positive payments to jack it back up again. If you pay rent, it only reports if you miss it. And there's a lot of other things like that, like uh, payday loans, where people of color are targeted for payday loans. If you miss a payment on your payday loan, you get dinged. If you make a payment, you don't get any credit from the credit score model. And then we see that banks aren't lending to African-Americans and Hispanics. It seems like inequity is baked into the whole system. Yeah, and then again, we found white people with lousy credit scores, where the banks focused on the positive parts of their financial profile. And we found people like Rochelle, people of color, where the bank used the credit score to say no. Santander, the bank that eventually gave Rochelle a loan after her partner signed on, well, they wouldn't talk to us. Instead, the company sent us a statement. While we are sympathetic with her situation, it said, we are confident the loan application was managed fairly. The company also said it was more likely to grant a loan application from an African-American than its competitors. We reviewed the government data. It shows Santander was nearly three times as likely to deny a black applicant than a white one. How are you? Hey. Last fall, Laura stopped by Rochelle and Hanako's new home. They're just around the corner from her. And this particular day was a big one. Yes. First mortgage payment. Put in the mail. You put in the mail. I put in the mail today. Yeah. I had written the check. I wrote the check on the 31st. I have no idea why it took me so long to put in the mail. Maybe I was just being a rebel, you know? It's like, fuck Santander. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. Rochelle's first mortgage check got there on time. And yes, Rochelle and Laura both got to buy their houses. But get this. Even though Rochelle is borrowing less money, she has to pay hundreds of dollars more every month Her bank requires her to pay for mortgage insurance. Laura's doesn't. As I mentioned earlier, if you're wondering how this is playing out in your neighborhood, just text HOME to 202-873-8325. That's HOME to 202-873-8325. You'll be able to see the number of loans made near you and the racial breakdown of people who got those loans and those who got turned away. After the break, we go to the banks. I would just suggest you go online and see if you can make an appointment. Or not. It's not a branch, not a bank. That's next on Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. We've been talking about a pattern in cities across America. Banks are turning away people of color when they apply for a home loan. And we're looking at Philly because it's one of the biggest cities with this problem. The banks haven't been interested in discussing this with us. So reporter Aaron Glantz headed over to Philadelphia's downtown, known as Center City, where he's surrounded by banks. 
I think that right here you can really see how the system is failing in all these different ways from this corner. We have one, two, three, four, five. Wait, I have to count again. JP Morgan Chase, BB&T, Republic, First Trust, PNC, on one block, and then Joseph A. Bank, the clothier. Because, like, you couldn't sell a suit on this block unless you were called a bank. There's so many banks here. Aaron's at Market and 17th Street. There's a skyscraper here called Liberty Place. And on the 47th floor is the only outpost in Philadelphia of America's largest bank, J.P. Morgan Chase. Their branch here is part of their private client brand that caters to rich people. This is the part of Chase that helps clients preserve their wealth. That's what their website says. You can also get a mortgage or a line of credit here. Aaron tries to go up to the 47th floor, but he can't get past the security guards. I would just suggest you go online and see if you can make an appointment. Aaron asked the guards if they'd call the branch manager. They said no. This is not a branch, not a bank. J.P. Morgan Chase is not a bank? This is not a bank. But this location shows up in a federal database of bank branches. Chase told the FDIC that, yes, it was a branch. But when Chase made a list of branches for the regulators who enforced the Community Reinvestment Act, this same building in Philly had disappeared. Aaron stepped outside. J.P. Morgan Chase on the 47th floor of this skyscraper, in its documents to the federal regulators who are supposed to make sure that it's serving people in the communities where it's located, it's pretending that it's not here. The Community Reinvestment Act says banks only have to lend in low-income communities if they have a branch in a city that takes deposits. And since Chase's only outpost in Philadelphia won't take deposits, that means the bank doesn't have to lend in low-income communities here. Chase is exploiting a loophole in the law that allows them to avoid scrutiny of regulators. So what's the result of that lack of scrutiny? We looked at the data. And it showed us that J.P. Morgan Chase helped 745 people buy homes in Philadelphia over five years. But just 15 of those borrowers were African-Americans. So in Philadelphia, the biggest bank in America mostly lends to wealthy white people. You reached out to J.P. Morgan Chase, but no one would talk to you, right? The company sent a statement. It didn't dispute the fact that Chase is almost exclusively lending to white people in Philly. But it said they're planning on opening new branches there as part of a big national expansion sometime over the next five years. And what Chase is doing is just one example of how banks are getting around the intent of the Community Reinvestment Act. So, Aaron, the banks wouldn't talk to you about this, but come on. Clearly, there's a pattern here. I mean, 61 cities nationwide. Yeah, well, the banks wouldn't go on tape for this story. But I spent a lot of time on the phone with them. I talked to the industry trade groups, the American Bankers Association and the Mortgage Bankers Association. And neither of them, by the way, denied the basic fact that people of color are being turned down for mortgages at a rate far greater than whites. In a statement, the American Bankers Association said, the fact that banks haven't gotten in trouble with the federal government, that means there's no systemic problem here. And both industry groups said we didn't include some very important factors in our analysis. So what are the things that it didn't include? Well, we didn't include credit scores because we don't have them. And the reason why is the banks are keeping that information secret. They didn't want to give you credit scores? It's not that they don't want to give it to us. They've been fighting giving it to the government. Congress passed a law in 2011 that said this information is really important. The global economy crashed because of bad lending, and there was a Dodd-Frank Bank Reform Act, right? And one of the things that it did is it said, banks, mortgage brokers, you need to give us this other important information so that we can monitor you. That was seven years ago. And they still haven't done it. They've been fighting it every step of the way. But the whole reason we got into the mortgage crisis is because people were getting houses that they couldn't afford and didn't have the credit for, right? Right. They corrected for that, right? Remember, think back, 2008, Mm -hmm. 2009, nobody can get a loan. Credit has evaporated for everyone. Now here we are, almost a decade later, credit is back, but only for some people. And how do they justify that? The banks are saying that if we had this information, that some of the disparities we're seeing would simply melt away. That once you had this key credit score data, that 
you would understand why it is that African-Americans or Latinos would be denied at far greater rates than whites. So are they basically saying that blacks and Latinos just naturally have bad credit? I mean, that's what it sounds like you're saying. Yeah, I think that's one of the main reasons why nobody would give an on-the-record taped interview for this story. I mean, I spent months trying to get any of the banks that are featured in this show to sit down and talk to me on tape. And I think fundamentally the reason that they didn't want to do it is because they would have exactly the same exchange with me that you and I are having right now. Okay, so if the banks wouldn't talk to you, what about the people over the banks, the government regulators? Well, the mortgage data we analyzed was from 2015 and 2016, during the Obama administration. So I met with the nation's top bank regulator when Obama was in charge. He's in Boston. Tom Curry's in the private sector now. Instead of regulating banks, he represents them. He works for the Nutter Law Firm. Their offices overlook Boston Harbor. The firm is on the fifth floor. Curry's a soft-spoken guy, a 61-year-old man in a suit who spent his whole career in government. The last five years, as the nation's top bank regulator, the comptroller of the currency. I'm too young to retire and too poor to retire after over 35 years in government. I really only had one question for Curry. How was it that during those five years inspecting banks that he found 99% of them to be doing a satisfactory or outstanding job? So almost every bank in America is doing a good job? Really, I think you have to look at each individual bank and their individual record to see how well they're serving their communities. We told him about TD Bank, giving a loan to our producer, Laura Starcheski, a young white woman without much savings and a lot of student loan debt. At the same time, they denied the majority of home loan applications from African-Americans. Curry said he wouldn't talk about any particular bank, but he made this more general point about the Community Reinvestment Act. It's consistent with safe and sound lending practices. What Curry meant was... Even though banks are required to lend in low-income neighborhoods and to poor and working-class people, that doesn't mean they have to give a loan to any particular person, especially if they're unqualified. I told Curry about our analysis of 31 million mortgage records and that we found 61 cities across the country where people of color are more likely to be denied home loans. That's even after accounting for other factors like how much money they earn or the amount they want to borrow. I mean, when you see these numbers after doing the analysis in Mobile, Alabama, Ocala, Florida, Greenville, North Carolina, mm -hmm. Vallejo, California, mm -hmm. Columbia, South Carolina, all of these cities where our statistical analysis shows the reason you'd be denied for a loan is the color of your skin, mm -hmm. and yet under your tenure, under the previous head of the agency, 99% satisfactory. How can everyone be getting this satisfactory rating? Again, I'm, I can't answer that. Well, we found the same thing in Memphis, mm -hmm. in Wichita, in Little Rock. If all of these banks are getting satisfactory Community Reinvestment Act assessments, how come in all of these places people are being denied? I think that the results from your studies are unacceptable from the standpoint of what we want as a, a nation and to make sure that everyone shares in economic prosperity. Curry may say that today, but when he was in office, he gave a passing grade to 99% of banks. After Curry left, President Trump tapped Joseph Auding to be his comptroller of the currency. Odding is the first former bank executive to hold the position in half a century. He was president and CEO of OneWest, which after the housing crash was nicknamed the foreclosure machine. He left with a $12 million severance package and then became CEO of a golf club in Vegas. At his confirmation hearing last July, Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio grilled Odding about his record at the bank. You permitted your bank to break the rules while in the process making life harder for homeowners how do we trust that you won't allow banks to skirt the rules and harm their customers as their regulator? My viewpoint is, is if you look at the actual facts, there's a false narrative out there about the, the One West Bank servicing operation. I think you would walk away feeling very good about our operations. Well, it's a false narrative to you, not to those that, that lost their homes. We requested an interview with Joseph Odding, 
but he wouldn't talk to us. I asked his predecessor, Tom Curry, why he gave a passing grade to Audings Bank, One West, when they had such a poor track record of lending to blacks and Latinos. During the five years that he was the head of this bank, they made exactly three loans to African Americans to help them buy homes and just 11 to Latinos. And your office gave this bank a satisfactory rating. And it's one of the biggest banks in Southern California. I'm not going to really get into specific banks, uh, regardless of who was the CEO. So this is where we are. The top bank regulator in this country ran a bank that pretty much only lent to white people. And that was made possible in part because the person who was in that same chair before gave him and nearly everyone else a passing grade on the Community Reinvestment Act. So this landmark civil rights law from 40 years ago that was supposed to deal with the historic legacy of redlining is useless for a lot of people it was supposed to help. In fact, a cruel twist of the law is driving the ferocious pace of gentrification in cities around the country. Aaron went to another neighborhood in Philly where you see the changes happening. It's Point Breeze, just south of downtown Philly. It's filled with vacant lots, boarded up buildings, a bunch of liquor stores. There's no supermarket. But there's construction all over the place. On one corner, you can see a Zagat-rated brunch place, a cafe that serves espresso and PB&J. There's even a new yoga studio. You can feel free to stay here for Shavasana. Or you can begin to press in on one elbow, lift yourself off the blocks, find a nice, comfortable spot on your back, allowing your legs to go long. The yoga instructor, Callie Kim, is white, from rural southern Illinois. She moved here a few years ago with her husband, Hagana Kim, who's Korean-American. They're both lawyers. The yoga studio is their side business. It's like a fun way to spend our time, too. You know, it's really more of a hobby than anything else. Honestly, it, you know, it pays for, like, pizza a couple times a week, but it's, it's fun. I mean, we've, we've met a lot of our neighbors. The Community Reinvestment Act is why the Kims got a loan with almost no money down, a low interest rate, and almost no fees to buy their first house. Then we realized you don't even have to be a first-time homeowner. And then they used the same law to buy another house that they rent out. And then another, and another, and another. Five homes altogether. Now they're landlords in Point Breeze. The mastermind of this whole neighborhood transformation is developer Ori Feibusch. It's incredible to see just in five years how much this little pocket has changed. Back in the 1930s, this was one of the neighborhoods that the federal government drew lines around on maps in shaded red, declaring it hazardous for lenders. Today, it's the type of place where banks are supposed to lend under the Community Reinvestment Act. Every major uh, lending institution is lending in this neighborhood. There's a host of programs available from every major lending institution that provides uh, first-time buyers in this neighborhood with cheaper credits and cheaper money than you would be able to get elsewhere. Uh, it is arguably easier to get financing where we sit today than just a few blocks to our north in a more affluent community. At least it is for Ori, a wealthy white developer. In this neighborhood, his crews are demolishing old row houses and putting up big single-family homes and townhouse complexes. I honestly God, don't know the exact number, but we have participated in the development of several hundred homes and four or five hundred apartments at this point. I walked around the neighborhood with Ori looking at his development projects. They're easy to spot. Fluorescent lime green is his color. You'll see it in his offices, on his properties, even his house. So what is up with the lime green? Picking the most obnoxious color that glows in the dark was uh, helpful to standing out as a new business owner. It's not my favorite color. And He lives in the neighborhood, too. Uh, this is my home, by the way. So is this, uh, is this all yours, or is this an apartment No, it's, just, it's, it's one home. One home? Yeah. Just a, so did you build this place? I did. I did, yeah. When I told Ori that we'd found banks are favoring white borrowers over people of color, he found it hard to believe that banks would do anything that cost them business. It, it doesn't reconcile with what I see as common sense, and it would be obviously heartbreaking to hear that. Ori walks me over to a big townhouse project currently under construction, a whole city block. It's financed by the only bank with a branch in the neighborhood. Uh, so this lot immediately to our right, uh, where 46 homes are going to go, uh, is being financed by First Trust. 
uh, they're going to finance the construction financing over the next couple of years here. First Trust Savings Bank is a local company that's been in the neighborhood since 1934. They're financing this new development, but not doing much to help longtime residents here. Adrian Stokes is a retired bill collector who works part-time as a home health aide. Come on, Boots. Come on, Boots. Thank you. She lives here with her Pitbull Boots. She loves Boots. He has his own Facebook page. She lives a few blocks from Ori in a small brick house with aluminum siding on the top floor. Concrete stoop. The metal gate in front is closed with a bungee cord. She brings me inside and shows me how much work the house needs. The windows are cracked. They let in cold air in the winter and water when it rains. I just want to replace all this because, like I said, these are all the windows. These windows are really off track. The kitchen window's crack is so big that to hide it, she's built a wall of pirouette cookie boxes in front of it. Downstairs, in the basement, the sump pump backs up when it rains. The circuit breaker is hanging off the wall. There you go. Look. Yuck. All these wires drive me crazy. And all these wires, is like, oh, my God, I, I don't know what's going on. I'm just scared. Adrian went to First Trust to get a home equity loan. It seemed like the natural thing to do. She was current on her mortgage, and the balance was low. Plus, she had about $200,000 in equity because her house is now worth more. The bottom line, I have money, and I just wanted a chance to fix up my house. She asked for $30,000. The bank turned her down. I just wanted a home equity loan to fix up my house, and I couldn't believe they denied me. First Trust helped more than 500 people in Philly buy homes with conventional mortgages in the last five years. Just 11 of them went to African Americans. When I visited, the branch manager didn't want to talk. And like every other bank that I approached for this story, First Trust wouldn't give an interview. They wouldn't even send a statement. Two doors down from Adrian's place, there's a big hole in the ground. The foundation's been laid, and the building is just starting to go up. Adrian says a black family lived here for three decades, but the house was gone in a matter of days. A laminated permit on the chain link fence says Ori Feibush is building a new three-story house here with a roof deck. I feel like, who are they just to come here and do whatever they want to do? It's just not fair to us, because we've been here way before they did. Adrian isn't looking to move up to a brand new house with a roof deck. Like a lot of her neighbors, she's just trying to maintain her home. And if the banks won't help out, Philly real estate broker Arlene Waynes Thomas says, a broken sump pump can be the start of a downward spiral. And now there's a sewer line problem because out into the street, the city's gonna tax a fine or lien because I have to repair, and I don't have the money to do that. What happens? I have to give that house up. And here comes the gentrification. And that's how even longtime homeowners are forced out. Earlier in the hour, we met Rochelle Farul, an African-American woman who could only buy a house after her partner signed on. Her bank, Santander, is one of the only banks in America that's been downgraded under the Community Reinvestment Act, from satisfactory to needs to improve. And now, Santander has made a promise. The bank says it will make billions of dollars of home loans to low- and moderate-income families across the Northeast, lend to small businesses in hard-hit communities, and open branches in low-income neighborhoods and communities of color. When we told Rochelle about Santander's promises, she wasn't impressed. She says that if something big doesn't change, the city, where she's just managed to buy a home, will become even more racially divided. I suspect that in... 10 years, maybe less. I'll be the only black person living on this block. That's the impact. People who own homes, black people who own homes will lose them due to foreclosure. And that black people who want to buy homes will only ever be able to rent. As we've said throughout this hour, lending disparities aren't unique to Philadelphia. They're happening across the country. And we've made it really easy to find out what's happening with lending near you. 
Just text HOME to 202-873-8325. That's HOME to 202-873-8325. You can also visit our website, revealnews.org, to find out which banks lent to people of color and which didn't. In a minute, we're going to tell you about next week's show. We head to Chicago and see how the neighborhoods are changing there, in part because the city's closing of lots of public schools. But first, a whole team of people helped make today's show possible. Catherine Miskowski was our lead producer with help from Laura Starcheski. Aaron Glantz and Emmanuel Martinez reported this story. It was edited by Deborah George. Amy Powell, our editor-in-chief, oversaw our entire redlining project and edited the stories that you can read on our website. Ann Hoffman and Rachel DeLeon reported from Philadelphia. Eric Segarra, Sunduja Rangarajan, Michael Corey, and Jennifer LaFleur helped with the data, as well as Angel Costanis from the Associated Press. Special thanks to Animal Media Group in Pittsburgh and to Solomon Jones in Philadelphia. WHYY provided production support. Our production manager is Mwende Hinojosa. Our sound design team is the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, a.k.a. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, yo, Aruda. That help this week from Catherine Raimondo and Kat Shuknit. Our acting CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Be sure to check out next week's show. It takes us to Chicago, where the city shut down 50 schools in 2013. Since then, People like Irene Robinson have fought the decision. We need our neighborhood schools. This is important. Neighborhood schools are the heart of our community. When schools shut down, Irene says, people leave neighborhoods like hers in Bronzeville, a longtime landing place for African Americans in the city. Our people, our grandparents, when they left down south, they came to Bronzeville and they built here. We'll look at what happens to a neighborhood and the students who leave them on next week's show. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story.